from GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, bridging the rural-urban energy efficiency divide, why large corporate buyers are helping climate tech startups get a leg up, what happens when ESG and DEI go back to the office, and the growth of green jobs and why there are 9 million of them. We're polishing our resumes this week on 350. It's April 1st, 2022. No fooling. Welcome to another edition of Green Biz 350. So glad to have you with us. And joining me from Midland Park, New Jersey, nobody's fool, is Green Biz Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hi, Joel. <laughs> oh, yeah. April so, Fool's Day. <laughs> yeah. So, so what was April Fool's Day like for you growing up? Yeah, so April Fool's Day was was kind of a f- day fraught with uh, tension for me because <laughs> my my father and two brothers were horrible teases, and I would definitely get gotten at least three times re- before breakfast. I'm very, I was very naive. I actually tend to be naive. I I take people at their face value. If someone tells me something, I'm like, oh really? And then they'll be like, no, what are you kidding? So anyway, I'm um, an April Fool's person uh, I'm, a, I'm I'm a fun person to be around on April Fools because you can you can probably get me <laughs> what about you <laughs> uh, you asked for a you know, reason I tried <laughs> uh, well no I just was curious uh. I I, uh, I I actually don't even have a great story to tell I, I um you know I'm more of a jokester and, and punster than a trickster mm-hmm. uh, so I, I but I aspired to that so I tried and you know there were you know the usual you know saying something that wasn't true with a straight face to try and get someone to react but one thing I remember was one morning I got up and I guess this was a thing that I had heard about other people doing where you put salt in the sugar bowl and sugar in the salt shaker mm-hmm. and you switched them around. And, and so I thought, OK, that's going to be cool. I'm going to do that. And, you know, my parents are going to laugh hysterically. And my mother walked in as I was doing that and she was horrified <laughs> and yelled at me. And it was so not fun to uh <laughs> To, to be a trickster. I think I think that sort of ended my April Fool's uh, career, in quotes. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. It's it's. I was just curious because, you know, we all, this was one of those things, at least, uh, I don't know if it still is growing up, probably, that we all shared, uh, but much more in the uh, confines of our family or our, you know, our class in school. And uh, so I'm always curious, you know, what was that like for you? I mean, I've, I've talked to people in other countries who actually, in, in, in a friend of mine um, uh, in another country, you know, it turns out that she also did the salt and sugar switcheroo thing. And, and it's like, okay, well, we shared that. And we're, you know, and we're like, tw- you know, 20 years different in age. And so it's like, okay, that, yeah. So I'm just curious how universal yeah. some of these things are. It never occurs to me to do it, but actually I, I do need to be careful now in my current guys as a married woman because my husband loves doing that sort of thing so i'm always got to be on my guard but uh, what else is up this week joel well i was just gonna say i did write a piece <laughs> a few years ago uh for green biz which i have to dig up it about uh about why uh why it's really hard to do environmental humor okay <laughs> 
Oh, there's... yeah. I mean, that that is true, right? It is hard to do environmental humor. Yeah. Yeah. But I do also watch out for press releases on April Fool's Day. Now that you mentioned that, I, you made me think of PR, and I'm always super careful about my inbox on April Fool's yeah, Day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I haven't checked yet, but Grist often does something mm-hmm. kind of fun mm-hmm. uh, on April Fool's Day or, or NPR as well. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, mm-hmm. that's <clears throat> that's all I got. I think we yeah. should just uh, okay. move, <laughs> blow through that and, and, and get where we need to go, which is the Week in Review. Well, let's let, let's get to a more serious subject here, uh, which is a piece by our good friend Michelle Moore, the CEO of a nonprofit called Groundswell, and she's also the former head of the Council on Environmental Quality um, on bridging the rural-urban energy efficiency divide. Now, Michelle's been working uh, for uh, years and years uh, in her native uh, Southeast Appalachia, uh, America, uh, on on how do we bring uh, the the you know, the poorest of the poor in that area and beyond to uh, energy efficiency, renewable energy, um, usually through their uh, rural electric co-ops, which was a, a huge system that was set up during the after the Depression um, back in the in the 30s and 40s. Uh, and she's been doing some research. In fact, uh, this is tied to a, a research paper that they put out um, looking at what are the energy burdens of what what's called LMI, the low and middle income uh, households, uh, relative to uh, to everybody else. You know, it's about three three and a half percent for everybody else, which is the percent of of uh, income that's paid uh, through utility bills. But it doubles to over seven percent for LMI households, um, and uh, and that's a lot. If you're you know, she use an example. If you're a moderate income household in Birmingham, Alabama, you're bringing home about $46,600 uh, $46, a year, and you're paying $3,500 for electricity. And, um, uh, you know, annual electricity bills exceeding 6% of total household income are generally considered to be financially unsustainable. So the question is, what do we do about that? And and she, as, as, as Groundswell does, you know, talks about uh, some of the the programs that uh, are available now that need to be expanded and, or can at least continued in some other ways to uh, to serve. Because uh, we talk about, you know, climate change, we, we often talk about cities. Cities are where, you know, or soon will be where it's like 70% of the world lives. And, and so that's where we need to be focusing on uh, energy efficient, renewable, resilient cities. But there's a lot of people who live outside of cities, and those are, and a lot of them are poor, and we're just not taking care of them. Yeah, this this is something that I have kvetched about <laughs> in the past, where where you wonder why certain states aren't buying into the the clean energy kind of transition talk and the equity talk, and part of it is because their their focus is on rural communities more so than urban areas and and the states that are mentioned in in this particular article she she points to seven of them i mean you think about them alaska maine vermont mississippi hawaii south carolina alabama there's so many areas in those states that are not in cities and that 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 is something that i just think we just tend to overlook sometimes we just we just and it's to our detriment because you know collectively speaking we need the support of everyone to, to figure this out. And I, 
you know, from a from a corporate standpoint, you know, what does this mean? I think one of the things that, that um, Michelle pointed to was the fact that the some of these programs are, I mean, they're great programs, but they're they cater only to multifamily situations, and that just doesn't play in some of these household areas in 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 the rural areas that that we're talking about here, um, and it, it it comes down to policy design, but it also comes down to thinking about, you know, there's many co- companies that are out there talking about equity and how uh, they can make their own renewable, you know, their own energy purchasing habits help others. And I think that those companies tend to think about, okay, I'm going to buy re- renewables. Um, let's look at a project that will lift up a community uh, that has not had access to these things before. And they're almost always would think of a city first. I would, I'd be willing to bet. And I, you know, if, if a company is, is in a manufacturing, you know, like to manufacturing in particular, like if you're in these areas, you should be lifting up those communities and thinking, thinking more locally. And, and this is another example of why thinking local is so important, right? You know, you can't, don't do it elsewhere, do it near your own operations um, bring people along. Yeah. But to be clear, this isn't really about renewable energy. No, um, it's about efficiency. Uh, yeah. yeah and, and because, mm-hmm. I mean, because the reality is, as Tom Friedman pointed out in his uh, New York Times column this week, how to defeat Putin and save the planet, you know, the top four uh, uh, mm-hmm. wind producing states are t- Texas, Iowa, Oklahoma, and Kansas. Uh, yes. So, you know, traditionally uh, uh, red leaning states um, saying that. Politely, I mean, not politely. It's just they, they re- deep red states in some cases, um, and um, and so it's not about the electricity coming into the grid. It's the fact that so many of these houses are uninsulated, uh, have bad windows that are leaky windows, uh, that have energy inefficient appliances, and and uh, you know we're not going to uh, address our energy problems if those continue to be. Uh, so energy inefficient, and then once they're they are efficient, that's when you know renewable energy makes sense. Because I always you know I always bring up this uh, little bit of a tangent here with this you know the three R's that we learn about uh, environmental three R's you know uh, reduce reuse recycle, and it's not just an alliteration; it's it's a, a hierarchy where we start with reducing waste, and then we. We use as much as possible, and then we whatever's left we recycle. But people often go to recycling as the first choice, uh, even when that's that should be without going through the first two. And the same with energy; it's really efficiency, renewables, and then offsets. So you want to use the least amount of energy you can, uh, and then of the energy you do use, you want the most amount to be renewable, and then of the you know so-called brown energy, you can't you go to offsets. People go right to offsets as, as the solution. And so, uh, and all that's to say that energy efficiency is the first and most important part of this. And, you know, we need to do this in cities as well, but but she's talking particularly about those who, who are at least able to afford both the upgrades and the energy itself. So I think that's a really interesting piece. And there's uh, she's going to have more on this uh, in, in future columns as well. Yeah, I would like to make one other point, which I think could be, and I, I, I'm looking forward to those other other columns. But um, this could be an interesting um, place for green banks to play a role because that is one of the things they do. They go and help, um, you know, basically get the capital for the things that you were describing, and and 
and they're looking at ways of making that available to people that typically can't get the financing, right? And that's because they don't have the, the credit history or they don't have the assets to put up against it. And that's that's an important thing too. How do you get that capital? And so I'm, I'm actually really looking forward to the, the other pieces. Um, yeah, just, and that's the old ESCO, the old uh, uh, energy, exactly. energy service company model yep. where you go mm-hmm. in and you can do this instead of at a factory or even one home, go in and say, all right, we're going to take this county and and uh, make the homes and, and offices and everything else as efficient as possible and then uh, for, at no upfront cost, and then we'll take a piece of the savings over the next 15 or 20 or whatever number of years. Um and so, you know, that is a model, and I'm, I'm surprised no one's done it, except that it's much easier to do it in a neighborhood or in a building than in a, in a hundreds of square miles uh, yeah. county. So uh, yep. important topic, lots more to come on that. Yep. Hey, speaking of offices, Joel, because <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned that, um, you did a piece this week uh, on the return, you know, the sort of what the return to office could mean for ESG and DEI and you know, so many other acronyms. But I I enjoyed this piece because for so many reasons. One, one is that um, I hadn't really thought of what an office will look like in the future. And I think that's part of, you know, that's really part of what you were discussing here. And I'll get you, let you dive into the details in a moment. But the fact is, if you, if you, Think of your physical office in the same way you thought of your physical office pre-COVID. You're probably not going to have people going back to the office <laughs> in any in any kind of um, configuration, hybrid, maybe you know once a week or whatever. But I just um, I there's so many things going on with this this whole return to office thing that we haven't really talked about in a in a sustainability and DEI sense and I but you did decide to tackle it for this column and I'm just wondering if you can give us a little bit more background what what prompted this this uh exposition <laughs> this one I because it I really found it fascinating yeah thanks uh this came out of a session that I moderated at an inaugural ESG summit uh, hosted by a company called Join, which uh, helps uh, building owners and occupiers uh, just be more efficient and more engaged, and 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 it does a whole number of things in you know in the digital side in terms of transforming buildings for their owners and occupiers. And they had this event is up in uh, up in Sonoma County in the wine country at this really really nice resort, and and I was. Uh, brought in to uh, moderate a session. It was actually not on the environmental side of ESG. It was on the social piece. And looking at, you know, what does it mean when we come back to the office from the, the social equity and diversity and other other uh, aspects of that? So had three panelists, and I wrote a, a piece based on that. And uh, what was interesting, a few interesting things. One, it's all about data. Uh, how do you understand what's going on in the building, what's going on with the people in real time? So, and there's a whole growing array of algorithms and analytics and artificial intelligence and other management tools to really assess in real time what's going on. Um, but that's the tech piece of this. And there's other parts of the tech piece. What was really interesting, oh, and then there's, you know, how do you, there's all these different uh, technologies and systems. And there's a Tower of Babel where there's the interoperability of the data is doesn't really make sense which I think most people in sustainability inside companies know that consistency and of data quality is really challenging when you're trying to really take the pulse of a, of a building or facility or value chain. But the social piece was, I think, really interesting because there's a lot of 
you know, there's the diversity goals, there's the attracting and retaining talent, there's, you know, figuring out what is what are work styles going to be like, to your point, after the pandemic in terms of how often you come in and what are meetings like and what are, you know, managing people like, and then even thinking workplace locations. I mean, we're, you know, our little company, you know, about 45 people now, but we'll be probably 65 by the end of the year. So we're on a hiring spree. There's a bunch of jobs out there if you want to check them out, but 10 of them I think we have right now. Um, you know, for the first time when, until recently, we I think you, Heather, were the only person uh, outside of California uh, working for, uh, as a you know, salaried employee for the company. And, and now we've got, I don't know, maybe six or eight or 10 even, and then we'll have more coming. And that alone, just for our little company, presents uh, some interesting things about how do we create the, the spirit of collegiality and how do we keep in touch and, and, and you know, time zones and, and things like that. And we're just U.S.-based. We don't even have things across the ocean. But there's also, um, you know, I was, I was particularly fascinated that, you know, there's employees who have invisible disabilities, um, maybe some uh, psychological or anxiety-related kinds of things, who found that working from home during the pandemic has enabled them to control the noise and the lighting and the temperature and other things that have made life much better for them. But those are things they can't necessarily control when they go back to the office. And um, and so, you know, what does food service look like going forward in a, you know, in the post-pandemic world, in a world where, where um, people don't come in as often? How do you plan on the food service? So many aspects of this that I, I just thought it really interesting. And a lot of things I hadn't thought about. So I always, you know, assume, well, if I hadn't thought about it, others haven't thought about it. Uh, and, and then, you know, this comes down to a lot of the pure economics that, you know, because you throw in ESG and DEI and climate crisis and um, uh, and the great resignation. Um, oh, yeah. And the pandemic. And we're really upending our work styles uh, so much more than before. And the great resignation where people are jumping ship much more than they had before, just dropping out of the workforce the cost of attrition for an employee earning $150,000 a year can be between 175 and, and 140,000 according to Mark Jacobson one of my panelists and and so how do we how do we mitigate those costs keep them down that was just really really interesting stuff for me and this doesn't even i mean this this we're talking about this we are we work for a knowledge based company right so I really related to everything in this article because, yes, I, I was up until, you know, last year, the only person outside of California um, and definitely had, uh, and I've, I've said this to everyone on our team, is I feel almost, I feel more included now than I, I did before. Um, not that I was excluded, but of course, by my physical location, it was tougher to, to get in on that kind of collaboration part. But one of the things that I was thinking about as I was reading this is there's many companies that have this kind of office situation to deal with, but then they also have manufacturing facilities and distribution warehouses where the people have to be there. And how do you ensure that the there is an equitable opportunity across the entire off quote office end quote footprint, right? Because the person's experience in a headquarters location could be totally different than someone in a wherever. 
And how do you balance that? Make sure people are, make sure that your workforce is treated fairly and equitably across that. Um, you know, that's, you know, I, I've heard people say, oh, I mean, you're so lucky to have a hybrid, you know, choice. I don't have any choice, but they want the choice. And how do you, how do you handle that sort of desire upon the part of the individuals that are in those opportunity, you know, in those locations? How do you, how do you make things work there too? Yeah, and, and there's one other aspect too that uh, I hadn't thought about too, which is a geopolitical piece. Uh, so, so one of the the people in the panel has a. Uh, a client who's one of the largest employers of software engineering in Eastern Europe. And uh, they said they've got both Russian and Ukrainian workers there, and they now no longer will work in the same office together. And so they now have to move, the client has to move a thousand employees somewhere else. And they also have uh, people in China and, and Taiwan and a number of other places. And they, you know, he said, uh, uh, we, the client keeps saying, we need to move away from geopolitical risk. So now you have to re-architect an entire global workforce around basically today's headlines. And, and yet, yet another piece of this beyond diversity, equity, and inclusion, beyond uh, the great resignation, beyond, uh, you know, the, the coming back to work uh, after the pandemic, this is uh, going to be a really interesting world, as you said, Heather, from a social and uh, equity piece. Uh, we're going to keep watching the story. But uh, here's a story I want to watch for the moment. And this is one that you did about how two companies uh, who don't normally go in the same sentence, Apple and Shopify, uh, are leveraging their buying power to uh, really catalyze some markets uh, around um, both uh, new materials and carbon removal. And uh, well, I'll, I'll shut up and let you tell us about it. <laughs> yeah, this is an extension of something I've been writing about and talking about for a while, which is the importance of large corporations in sending buying signals to climate tech companies and, and or from any, any startup for that matter. But uh, there were two developments over the past week that uh, just got me thinking and it prompted this particular essay. And one was an update from Apple, um, uh, Lesis. They're working with a aluminum venture in Quebec. Uh, they, the venture, Elisis, I, I'm not sure how I'm, if the name is, is pronounced that way. I'm, I'm probably butchering it. But um, it's a company that was created by Alcoa and Rio Tinto, along with some of Canadian government um, money. And it's also received money from Apple. And Apple be basically decided to um, buy aluminum from this company starting in 2019 to help them get this process in place. So the idea is, number one, that the aluminum is smelted with uh, renewables, but it's also uh, the, the production, the gases that it produces. The theory is that it's producing oxide rather than all of these other emissions that are normally associated with this process. So it's less carbon intensive. So... Apple has been buying batches of aluminum for them since, like I said before, uh, since 2019. And they just hit another milestone, um, putting it into the iPhone SE product line. Now, they're not disclosing how much they're buying yet. And I'm probably it's probably not a huge amount. But at the same time, it is enough to help this company get the proof of concept that it needs to get the stuff out in the field, to understand how it's performing, to really get, um, you know, this is this is not a commercial relationship at this point, but it's definitely production level, right? So for certain parts of the portfolio. So that's the first example. And then there's this Shopify. I just love what Shopify has been doing um, over the past several years and helping fund um, carbon removal 
startups. And and it and when I say that, it's not just like direct air capture and, and that's the only thing they're funding. They're, they've, they've got so many different investments. Um, a couple of companies that we've written written about in the past, Remora, um, which is the one that's doing the carbon capture technology for trucks. So they're capturing truck emissions. Um, a company called Drone Seed, which is using drones to reseed forests and to keep on top of how the, the seedlings are doing to make sure that they're nurtured properly, to make sure that they're cultivated and, and keep tabs on it. You know, so not only does it plant things more quickly, it helps make, sh- you know, as we were talking about recently, helps them grow and helps ensure the, that more of them make it to the point where they are sequestering carbon. But Shopify, not a, you know, not a huge company in terms of the world of corporate sustainability, but what they have been doing, um, the small e-commerce, this e-commerce player is, is putting whatever month funds they can into carbon removal. And so we were talking a moment ago about how offsets is kind of the, the last kind of resort you want to hear from a, anyone that's got a net zero strategy. This, these are not offsets. These are, these are projects that are actually, you know, taking the the carbon out of the air and removing it and um, they're not just avoiding it so anyway that's just two examples there are some other companies as well but but the fact that these companies are putting money into the climate tech they're helping them get off the ground at the at a very early stage which is not typical um, and that's what I was ranting about this week yeah, but isn't that an offset? I mean, an offset is you know, in this, this is the same thing as planting trees, except in a in a technological way. That you're doing something that's going to cause carbon to be removed, which allows you to take credit for to offset emissions that you're still making. Um, I was just curious by that why you said that wasn't an offset. They're not relying on this as their first line of defense. I mean, Apple is is basically trying to ensure that like in the case of Apple, like maybe, so maybe that one's a little bit, that one's different than the Shopify investments, but the material is being produced in a way that will not be emitting as many emissions in the future. Um, so that would seem to be, to be fall into the efficiency play that you were mentioning before, like you're reducing the emissions. Um, you know, in the case of Shopify, yeah, Sure, I can, Remora is an example of reducing emissions from a technology that's going to be on the road for a while. I mean, you're not going to just eliminate every every semi truck till you can get them off the road. Reduce what they're putting out. I mean, I so I think you can make the argument that um, you know some of them. Yeah, you could probably throw them in the category of offsets. But I I see I don't know I see removal as being a very different. Um, kind of technology play than a than a reforestation project I yeah the language the yeah. language on, of all this gets yeah. uh, dicey really quickly i yep. think uh, uh we should try to figure out uh, you know is carbon removal uh, part of the offsets or is that a whole new category Great question. if we'd love to hear from uh from uh, 350 listeners just drop us a note 350 at greenbiz.com and, and let us know your thoughts Almost 9 million U.S. jobs are already tied to the green economy, roughly 6% of all jobs, according to a recent analysis by research firm Management Information Services. So what is a green job? How will the focus differ from region to region? And how can individuals develop the skills necessary to claim one? 
Those questions and more are the focus of the Green Jobs Project, a series of reports and articles being developed by nonprofit journalism organization Working Nation. We've been republishing some of that information on the GreenBiz site, and here to talk to us more about the job creation potential of the green economy is Paula DePerna, a longtime environmental analyst, author, and special advisor to the CDP and Working Nation. Welcome, Paula. Thank you. Good to be with you. So you've been focused on this intersection of jobs and the creation potential of the clean economy for years. So I just want to start with a ground leveling question. Do you think there's enough visibility about this issue? And what kind of progress have you seen, especially over the past two years? Well, the past two years is a standalone situation, I think, which we can get to. I mean, um, some years, I mean, I've been working and writing about environmental issues for most of my career, one way or another. And um, when I was working as president of a foundation in the Midwest, I could feel that there was this ongoing tension, so to speak, between uh, industrialization, decline, uh, declining American manufacturing, our states were, you know, Indiana, Illinois, Midwestern, quote, Rust Belt states. And then on the other hand, I could see that there was all this promise, green economy, uh, you know, tremendous wind uh, potential in the Midwest, uh, Great Lakes, water issues. And I began to realize that if we didn't come to terms with the public's perception that there was a trade-off between mm-hmm. economic growth and jobs mm-hmm. creation and uh, environmental protection, one, we'd never be able to really protect the environment in the way it should be. And also we wouldn't have the public support to do it. And so uh, then I started something called the Jobs and Environment Initiative, which was intended to look at this question. And I've come to the conclusion that really, despite the best efforts in the average person's mind, there still is this trade-off that uh, uh, if we if we go gung ho to protect the environment, it's going to cost jobs somewhere and might cost my job. And I realized that the only reconciling agent between this perceived conflict is green jobs creation, where we marry the two and say you can have both. It's not always perfect, but we can have both. And so what's changed in the last two to five years, I think, especially like uh, where climate change is concerned, you've had one, a tremendous increase in public support, public concern, let's say, uh, about climate change. Anybody understands, even at the anecdotal level, that the weather is changing. We have these extreme events. The supply chains are disrupted. People's driveways, including my own, are becoming, you know, muddy fields because of these rain bombs. People have unprecedented rainstorms, then sun. You know, this is all confusing to the public and um, their concern is showing. And then then on the other hand, you had COVID, which chilled the economy and certainly chilled jobs creation. So we're in a kind of unique moment. But I think the, the, the point really certainly has to be made that the only future we have is to invest in what everyone is calling a reindustrialization. And if you define that as meaning, meeting environmental imperatives, then you have a bonanza and you, you can put a lot of people to work or repurpose the work that people are doing. So I think we have a tremendous opportunity at hand. And um, I know Missy has projected that that nine percent, you know, that, that green jobs so-called are going to be 14 percent of the jobs in the country in the next decade. Well, that's a pretty big slice. The other thing that's really important to cite in the last sort of five to 10 years, of course, the Paris Agreement in 2015, but also this tremendous shift in how investors are using their money and the greening of the economy 
is a very significant uh, uh, fact. And frankly, most people don't realize that the green economy is gigantic. I mean, in 2019, it was, uh, I think the stat is uh, 619, $650 billion in sales that you can attribute to the so-called green economy pre-COVID, which is two and a half times the size of Walmart sales. So Missy is the is the research firm I mentioned in the introduction. Um, I just want to step back because I think, I mean, obviously COVID, yes, completely changed the the equation for everything um but you mentioned the last five years about how much how much um activity there has been without the support of a of a federal administration that bought into this notion um now we are in a in, in the united states in a moment where we do have the potential to invest in this reindustrial realization that you're mentioning um but i, I, I guess my question is you know what potential do you see uh, over the next decade, let's just pick um, for this. If there's support on the federal level, and if there's not, because it sounds like there's a lot really happening from the private sector already, is it a matter of letting that just getting out of the way and letting that happen, or do we really need to support this more forcefully um, with policy at, at this time? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, also, I just want to correct what I just said about about the size of the green economy. That's twenty five percent the size of Walmart, six hundred fifty billion in mm-hmm. sales, mm-hmm. and it's uh, two and a half times the size of Apple sales. So, just for perspective, and mm-hmm. maybe we can go back over that. But to answer your question, you know, I think it's it's a combination of things, and and we've seen over the years. You know, a combination. You know, a strong federal hand, and then a weak federal hand. And you know, funnily enough, the science is now ahead of everybody. Climate change science has not quit. It just keeps coming in, and the science shows an indelible and immutable fact that the planet is warming, and that in general, climate change is accelerating. And we have these anecdotal episodes. So the science is really driving the train in a funny way. And companies, to their credit, and certainly investors, have seen that there is money to be made in investing in in meeting environmental imperatives. There's new processes. There's new manufacturing that that is efficient. Energy, you can never have too much energy efficiency, especially if your bottom lines are tighter. So companies are looking constantly to reduce their energy use. You see all kinds of byproducts. I mean, back to COVID, there were some examples in Pennsylvania that, you know, companies that hospitals that were seeking to better filter their air to to deal with COVID found that that if they did that, they were saving a lot of money and energy because their, uh, you know, their heating and their air conditioning systems were obsolete. So there's all this byproducts and all this generated perceived and understood and, and truthful, um, you know, benefits to addressing climate change that the private sector sees. That said, you need federal incentives. And going back to my role at CDP, we did a report a couple of years ago called Risks and Opportunities. And what was un- what was amazing was that companies based in the U.S. cited half the business opportunities in addressing uh, environmental issues as their European Union counterparts. And that was because of an absence of regulatory certainty. In the EU, you know, you, if you do a tax incentive, it, it's sort of permanent. I mean, or mostly permanent. Yeah. You don't have to. You're not subjected to voting on it every two years. So here, especially utilities, they have to retool their plants. People going into robotics, high, you know, mapping, digital mapping, satellite mapping, 
Um, all of these technologies require a long lead time. And if the United States makes these investments with, with policy support, you know, it'll, it'll pay off in the long run. And of course, back to the jobs thing, it, it makes a, st- a stable situation for companies so they don't have to hire and lay off, hire and lay off. They can plan. So I guess the shorter answer to your question is we need a combination of things and federal incentives are very important. That said, companies are moving. They got, they've gotten the message and investors certainly are. So I uh, was really interested in some of the states that the Working Nation Project um, has chosen to highlight first, right? So the Working Nation reports and so forth really are looking at this issue from a state-by-state basis. Um, and the initial states chosen to be highlighted included Arkansas, Mississippi, Louisiana. I think these are places that most of our listeners wouldn't point to first as job, you know, green job meccas. They probably just wouldn't necessarily think of that. Um, so my question is, are green jobs important for every state? Um, are, or are there places that stand to benefit more than others? I mean, how, how can this red state, blue state thing, why does that go away in the green jobs scenario? Or does it? Well, I mean, there's uh, earth, fire, and water in every state. So, you know, I think, I think <laughs> yeah, right. uh, yeah. uh, um, every, everybody can find their way, you know, right. into the green economy. I mean, clearly in a state like Arkansas, I think we focused a lot on the rice industry and a particular thing there that was fascinating. So going back to climate change, you know, I did not myself know that rice production was very um, high in methane. And, you know, who, who would have thought that? But why, is, why does rice production cause methane um, emission? Because if flooding the field, which is a technique for growing rice, very important business in Arkansas, um, you end up with bacteria and it's the bacterial decay that causes the methane. So if you don't flood the field, you get less methane because you have less bacteria. Well, not flooding the field is also a water efficiency. So, you know, you have, and, and, and so where's the green jobs impact there? You have farmers who can stay on their land because if there were to be someday, and, and there will be no doubt a limit on methane emissions, you know, it could bite very hard on rice farming, let's say. But if rice farming gets ahead of the methane question, um, you know, so there's retaining the, the, the viability of the rice economy in a methane sensitive world. That's one big jobs benefit. And then secondly, you have the training and the advanced um, skill set of farmers learning these new techniques. So that that was a kind of cool, I thought, interesting example in uh, in Arkansas. And um, so if you go state by state, you know, all states have cities. So cities we know can be super buildings, you know, 30% of greenhouse gas emissions, I think, are buildings. So you can never have too much building efficiency in cities. You know, you have smart sidewalks where uh, snow melts uh, without being shoveled. Um, You know, have all kinds of new technologies that can work in cities, retrofitting, building, construction. There's all kinds of jobs involved with that, green architecture. And then when you get into rural areas, you have, as I say, farming, you have forestry, reforesting, water management, ecosystem, you know, wetlands restoration. All of this pays off in terms of meeting natural capital requirements, meaning, you know, protecting the physical assets of the earth. And I think the big difference is we now actually fully understand that as an economic question, that protecting the natural resources of the planet is an economic requirement. And I think that has been a little bit missing. It's still been a kind of choice 
we can just lay waste to the place and then, you know, the next generation will have to deal with it. I mean, that's, that's not viable. And I think most people would never say that publicly. And most people would be, uh, most people don't believe that anymore. If they ever did. I mean, you know, I think it was an indifference. Of course, you had people who just didn't care and dumped, you know, toxic waste and didn't care what they put in the water and people who really violated the basic environmental rules. But now, even without rules, I think we're working on a more subjective uh, plane, uh, but people seem to get it. So I guess it really just depends on the state, right? I mean, whatever natural resources they have, whatever cities they have, it's going to be different in every state for different reasons. There could be one place could be an energy state. One place could be a green farming state. Um, you know, great opportunities. How, do, how can we ensure that these opportunities are inclusive, right? That we're not leaving that these, these, these have the potential to create new opportunities for those that have been kind of traditionally left behind by economic growth, um, you know, either because of their location or because they haven't had the same sort of training opportunities. Well, I mean, on the training, I mean, a lot of these jobs really don't meet the eye as green. So for example, the favorite, you know, I like to use the plumber, the plumber whose job it is, is to fix leaks. Well, 30% of the world's water is going down the drain, literally in leaks. So, you know, just an ordinary plumber learning more about new water management, it's not a big reskilling necessarily. Um, but if that plumber goes to the local hardware store and says, I need a X kind of efficiency meter and the hardware store person says, um, I never heard of it. And we don't have that here, you know, so to, to take full benefit and, and assure the equity, the, the, all of this has to be both the hardware store and the hard science bench. You know, it's, it can't be just the, you know, a sort of skin deep uh, awareness uh, so I would say even state to state, there has to be a coherent and national vision for this. And the governors probably are among the most important people who can kind of create a de facto national vision if there's not a national vision. Uh, of course, the infrastructure bill that the Congress passed is critical to this. And, um, you know, we're waiting to see how that plays out. But of course, as you know, basic things like bridge building and raising the level of bridges, that's basic to improving climate resilience. And I think equity comes, first of all, from recognizing that this is an all jobs, all sectors approach, and that there is a job for everyone, including people who have basic manual skills who might be able to really get into a green economy situation without a whole lot of extra effort. The other thing about the equity piece is that there are tremendous, there's tremendous leadership in the environmental movement, especially in finance, among people of color and, you know, in the investment field and in the banking field. And, you know, there's the Black Farmers Sustainable Black Farmers Association. You know, there's a lot of leadership in the environmental movement that represents diversity and excellence, but somehow doesn't as much come to the fore because we're trying to always recreate a balance to avoid victimization. And I think it's important to look at the leadership and try to bring the leadership voices forward as well. And the more leadership that, that is diverse looking and acting, the more there will be equity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So given that the audience for Green Biz and Green Biz uh, 350 is uh, large corporations, predominantly uh, businesses, business leaders, um, organizations that have the potential to invest not only in their, their own workforces, but 
but new one, new potential people in the future, but also their partners and so forth. How can the corporate um, leaders better catalyze this green jobs movement? How can they help energize what's going on um, to help us get to the place where we need to be? Well, my own personal view is that corporations should be advocating for a national carbon price. This would be something that would really change the dynamic uh, because if nothing else, a carbon price is critical. So for example, the EU ETS up until the war, the tragic and senseless war in the Ukraine, carbon was trading at you know, nearly a uh, hundred something dollars a ton, 90 euros something. So that is 40 or $50 above the obvious, you know, the basic mitigation cost. So companies that have a net zero goal that want to be incentivized to um, uh, invest in green technologies that, that you know, would like to have some tax relief here and there. The first thing to advocate, I think, is for a national carbon price, because that's a level playing field and that helps everybody benchmark their internal costs. And that would enable stability and regulatory uh, you know, uh, equity, if you will, and that always helps invest investment. Um, and so I think that's the, the first contradiction to clear out, that you can't be in favor of a net zero goal, even by 2050, which is, of course, too far out. But let's say you've set a net zero science-based target by 2030, having a national carbon price is number one essential. And I would put that at the top of the list. And then with regard to the green jobs in particular, there is no limit to the value of investing in people, you know, investing in diversity, diversity of thought, diversity of leadership, you know, gender parity. Uh, the, the only excellence in the world comes from diversity. And so companies that, that invest in diversity all up and down their management chain will see the benefits. And that is a jobs thing. And investors too. I mean, I you know, there's a lot of funds now that look at the SDG goals as as critical. A lot of firms engage with companies and ask them, well, how do you treat your workers? What's your training? What kind of training are you giving your workers? You know, like, do they get time off for training? Um, do they get a premium for taking an extra cost? You know, how are you developing your workforce? And investors are now putting a little pressure on that. So, you know, I think if you're a company and you've set a net zero goal by 2030, that is a jobs investment because you can't get there. You will never be able to get to a net zero by any date if your people don't believe in it as well. And, you know, if you're not actively showing the staff and the hires and the recruitment and the ads you put out that this is your goal, because, you know, increasingly, especially since COVID, people want to have purpose. You know, people, I think, want two things. They want their lives to be stable. They want to take care of their families. They don't want to have to, you know, worry about how to pay the next bill. That's number one. And once that is under control, they want to have purpose. And I think, you know, the green jobs back to the to the beginning, the green jobs embodies both. And if, if people can believe in this, then I think it's a tremendous momentum for all the other things we've been talking about. Well, Paula, I really appreciate you dropping by the podcast today. Anytime. I love to talk about these things. And I'm really uh, more optimistic than usual uh, because I think, we, you know, certain Certain things are indelible and, uh, you know, are, are uh, inescapable and protecting the planet is that number one thing right now. You just heard from Paula DePerna, a longtime environmental analyst and special advisor to the CDP and Working Nation. 
And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and you'll find out more about the organization stories and events we mentioned. While you're over there, check out our free weekly newsletters. We publish seven of them every business day, uh, well, one every business, one or two every business day, seven every week. <laughs> They're a great way to stay up to date all week long. Just go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters to sign up. We'd love to hear from you. As we said before, uh, your questions, your comments, your tips, uh, hit us up at 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. We'll see you next time. Bye.